Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. We're trying a new thing today. We're going to call it, uh, what is it, guys? Word Fitly Spoken After Dark, where we're just going to just kind of talk for an hour about whatever we want to. <laughs> no, we're going to give you kind of a little bit of a behind the scenes of what we're thinking about for future episodes. We're going to talk about some important topics, and this is really going to kick off the season uh, in, in a big way. We're going to talk about preaching, homiletics, I don't know, Sasquatches and skunk apes. We don't really know where we're going just yet, but that's why. It's new. It's going to be fun. We're happy to be back for a new season. A lot of good stuff coming up. We're also going to talk about some of the projects we have in the works, some surprises for you uh, that we think you're going to be really happy with. So, guys, let's begin where it's meet and proper. Um, How is the weather out in North Dakota? Well, I, I am happy to report on the weather here in North Dakota because uh, I happen to be here with Selwyn at this time. We're both totally COVID-free, so no concerns there. It's very windy today, very nice, very nice people everywhere that I've met. I've met approximately, I've seen four human beings in the state of North Dakota. It's been very nice, all very nice people. So you've met 40% of North Dakota? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, no, it's 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 a pretty typical day for North Dakota. But no, uh, Adam is is preaching for uh, our mission festival this weekend, and so we're happy to have him out here. Everything's going well, and things are getting colder, which warms my heart. So, well, we'll soon be recording in the dead of winter, or as the rest of America calls it, Z fall, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> on your end. So, yeah, exactly. So good. Uh, uh, Illinois is. Central Illinois. So it's um, actually it's been in the 80s this week. That's been a little little odd for the beginning of fall, you know. But that's okay. That's all right. We can we can deal with that. The bugs are kind of crawling back out again. But uh, you know we're look we're looking for fall pretty soon. All the pumpkins are out. The leaf is starting to turn. So yeah, not not too bad. Pretty pretty wholesome. Um, And the gourds are pretty much all harvested. So a big old pile of gourds just setting up. (laughs) <laughs> and you got approximately what ten thousand again this year? I've got enough. Can one ever have enough gourds? That's the question. <laughs> yeah, what I mean, what does a man do with six gorillion gourds? Um, you know, there's a lot of birdhouses to be made. Um, salsa bands, like yeah. you know, they need maracas. Yeah, <laughs> to be fashioned. That's right, exactly. Uh, Sherlock Holmes cosplay, very big right now. So there, there are things to do. There are things, you know, um, but beyond that, you know, not a lot of medicinal uses for the gourd, but, you know, if we do an herbology episode, I don't know if I, if I want to save that until, until then, but literally no medicinal benefit to gourds as far as I know. <laughs> well, yeah, imagine anything in the new world uh, would actually be necessary. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there we go. Well, guys, so the first thing we want to talk about is... You know, uh, you mentioned, Adam, as you were pulling your handcart toward the North Dakota border, that you were thinking about the history of homiletics and the history of preaching. Yeah. And so on your journey out to North Dakota, you and Zellin exchanged a series of letters. Smoke signals. Oh, oh, smoke signals. I I guess you're no longer writing letters on a nice vellum. It's become too... uh, Costly to produce. Well, things get more primitive the farther west you go. That's right. So you've been smoke signaling the history of homiletics and preaching back and forth toward one another. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Why why would you be talking about this? I know you're both studying homiletics kind of independently, nerds. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about right now. I have been working a lot on earlier Lutheran homiletics. So... There's an article that comes out in 1964 by a guy who taught at Valparaiso at the time. The article is called From Walther to Kemmerer. And we haven't really talked about Kemmerer, but we probably will eventually. He's really formative for how Lutherans sound today. But what happens in the article is that he skips over everyone between Kemmerer, unfamiliar to probably most of the listeners, and Walther should be very familiar to our listeners, especially if they've been good boys. I assume that there are girls that listen to the podcast, but I think they're mostly boys. And they've been listening to the back catalog during during our break. Uh, they, they'll know about how Walter preaches. But what he does is he just skips over everything in between. And what I've been looking into recently is everything in between, 
driven by a basic question, why don't we sound when we preach the way our forefathers sounded when they preached? So that's where I started. And there's some stuff that you know we can talk about that I found, but it's been rather remarkable to discover how much we've lost entire traditions of handling texts and uh, thinking about what you're, what's actually needs to happen when you're preaching. Right. You know, I've been uh, back uh, reading about Methodist circuit riders again and uh, going through Francis Asbury's journal. And I feel like if we talk too much about how they preached, uh, people would show up at the parsonage with pitchforks. Right. So, well, but, the, I, uh, the audience probably isn't ready for the knowledge that Francis Asbury uh, <laughs> has to give us in early America. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting um, how we get from, let's say, what do we want to say, late 19th century Lutheran preaching, mid, mid late to to the modern sermon. And in many ways, confessional Lutherans in America, and let's just we'll say LCMS Wells, ELS, have kind of adopted something of a standard sermon form, right. which borrows terminology from that 19th century period, but doesn't, at least in execution, resemble what we actually see being preached at the time. Yeah, exactly. And so there are kind of superficial things that anybody could see if you just have ever even read, let's say, a Walther sermon. Our sermons are a lot shorter. Um, they're usually a lot less biblically detailed. But there are other things and just as a kind of a preview of stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the season, when Reinhold Pieper writes his homiletics, which is almost 500 pages long in 1895, he has a really long section devoted to this Latin term that you could translate as the basis of division. That is basically how do I chop this up so that I can serve it the best way, right? How do I, you know, cut around the bone and make sure that I have enough and it's served up in the right way. And for him, that's like the whole art of preaching is actually figuring that out, how to serve stuff up in the right way to the right people. And honestly, before I read that, I had never heard of that before. So it's kind of a lost world. So it's it's been exciting to find out more. Zellin, how about you? Well, my, my journey into studying about preaching is more um, the general idea of preaching. And so I'm kind of been interested in the historical question, generally speaking, not, you know, narrowly Lutheran or anything like that. Uh, a book that really got me turned on to this that I came across during my readings was a, a two-part series of the history of preaching by uh, Dargan. I don't remember his first name. Do you remember, Adam? Uh, he is, if anyone knows their, their Southern Baptist history... <laughs> He is the uh, successor to uh, John Broadus, of course, who was a very important and influential homiletician in that tradition as well. And anyway, Dargan's two-volume series, you know, kind of takes the whole sweep of, of of biblical preaching, you know, down from the days of the, the apostolic period all the way down to his own time. And of course, the second volume is much more focused on his own time. But, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, how have preachers in the past approached the question of, you know, how do I preach God's word and what can we learn from them? You know, what kind of things can we glean from them? And, uh, and then with that in mind, then I kind of turned and I've been focusing on particular preachers and I'm still in the patristic period. Um, I've been, fo I've been reading a lot of origin lately. So <laughs> going on flights of fancy as it were, <laughs> But I mean, so, and so really my goal is, is to, I mean, to improve my own preaching and, you know, that should be the goal of all of this as well, but also to, to look at these questions of, you know, how did, you know, preachers in the, you know, with the conditions in the Roman empire, how did they approach the word of God when they had to deal with different, you know, different concerns, you know, moving down in through, again, again you know, the dark ages, the medieval period, all the way down to today. And, you know, what can we learn from them? That's kind of been my my focus that I'm going forward on. Yeah, uh, very good. And it's um, <clears throat> with the modern preachers being so accessible, it's more and more important for us to be reminded that we need to go back and see, especially the ancients too. I mean, as, as you're saying, uh, Zellin, or the, you know, the, the early church fathers, mm -hmm. um, why they preach the way they do, what are the consequences of the way that they preach? Mm -hmm. Because there, there is something today and I, and I'm sure, you know, it, it's present in the 19th century to a degree and present in some way throughout all of church history, but more and more we're seeing people preach to their audience. And, and I don't mean that in the positive way, which is you're preaching to your congregation or whoever is actually listening, 
but we see men kind of preaching to a certain person, whether they're in attendance or not, Uh, whether, you know, and uh, the internet age has really given us that where uh, a sermon, we, we can forget that the sermon is meant for those in the pews, not those out on the internet who might be clicking on to it. And what you find in the ancients, what you find in, uh, and then in the 19th century and, and, you know, 18th and 16th are, are men that are preaching to a specific people at a specific time. And so very important because what you find is a very specific, a very pointed kind of preaching. And more and more today in certain circles, we are moving towards almost a generic form to where, you know, the law you preach isn't really speaking to much and the gospel you preach becomes very generic. Now I sound very Waltherian when I'm saying like specific law to specific gospel, but (laughs) it's, it's easy to preach a quote unquote good theological sermon you know, in quote after theological, where you don't say you don't say any heresy. You say everything correctly. You, you know, you could pass your theological interview with that sermon if you wanted to, but it actually doesn't communicate much to that congregation. And so how do we have the metal that the better preachers before us did? Because remember, you know, think about Chrysostom, you know, preach a sermon that'll get you exiled. <laughs> Yeah, put put the empress on notice, and then you know suffer the consequences for it. So, yeah, exactly. And 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 not to say that there aren't men out there doing doing similar now, but it is kind of a there's kind of a golf club approach to to the preaching ministry and the teaching ministry that's infected many a denomination nowadays. Sure. To where to where you know you don't really your mind's eye doesn't see the guy in a Geneva gown or in a cassock and surplus and stole, but I see him in checkered pants with a goofy hat <laughs> and not a Beretta, you know, so, or a Copa. Yeah. So I guess like, like I say, so my hope is to, and I, we'll, we'll talk about specific preachers as we go ahead in the season. Cause you know, I think it would be worthwhile to break down, you know, what makes origin tick, for example, or. Yeah. So the preaching Christ series, we're really hoping to, to really feature heavily this season. And if there are any preachers that you would like to hear more about, uh, let us know. You know how to get in contact with us. And if you don't, stick around to the end of the episode and we'll tell you how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and so that's that's just kind of where we're coming from and hoping to, to really focus on all these things going forward. But no, it, it should be it should be good. And I think, especially with, with these great preachers of the past, you know, you, you study these men, even if we don't share all their theological convictions, because they'll teach us something about what it means to preach. You know, preaching is, I mean, yes, we want to have doctrinally correct, you know, we want to still be, you know, true to the confessions, but preaching is an art. And so why not look to those who have done it well in the past and see what we can actually learn from them? Right. So what Zoen just said is that Mein Kampf will be a featured episode here uh, in this season. Uh, okay. <laughs> we are. That's all he's talking about. He says, he says, he says, the man makes great speeches. Our, our, and, uh, and we caught Zoen posing in front of a mirror and taking pictures of his, of his oratorical poses. It was very inspiring. I'm not even sure what's happening as, right now. As far as, <laughs> as far as I know, not a single one of our federal handlers has suggested such an action <laughs> uh, until my agent says that that's something I need to do. I'm going to step out on that one. Right. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think that the idea that you can preach something that will get you that, that will be theologically approved, that will be orthodox. And yet that is not exactly what is happening in preaching. Yeah, I, I think goes to the heart of a crisis that I find people generally perceive when attention is called to it. So it's, it's really rather awkward for a pastor or for a hearer to have attention called to the fact that everyone knows what's going to happen pretty much every Sunday. Everyone knows how it's going to wind up. Generally, depending on the pastor, the steps they're going to be taken along that way. And sometimes people actually are under the, I would say, strong delusion that the sermon should basically be the same thing every Sunday. Right. And that shift from preaching as, as we've talked about so much, the chief work of a pastor, the chief 
duty of the pastoral office to a sort of liturgical hors d'oeuvre to Holy Communion. Therefore, it can be short. Therefore, it can try to essentially do exactly the same thing that Holy Communion does, which is provide certainty of absolution. It doesn't really need to do anything else. The sermon doesn't. I think if you understand not only that that's happening, sort of regardless of whether the church, uh, you know, what conferences the pastor of the church goes to in his free time, regardless, you're kind of getting that sermon. Once you realize that that's kind of the problem, I think it's much easier to see that learning, especially from the past, how better to apportion God's word so that it's actually profitable, which is what Paul says God's word is. It's, it's, it's not only God breathed, it's also profitable so that it's profitable for the hearer would affect, I think in general, amazing changes. And any preacher that begins to very seriously critique himself along these lines and say, do I actually know how to take this text and just in second Timothy terms or Romans 15 terms, can I make it profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness? And can I make it profitable for comforting? Once you start asking yourself those questions, I think preaching also just becomes a lot more interesting. I have a sermon that I'm ready to you know, give tomorrow as we record this. We're recording on a Saturday night. And I'm happy with the sermon as is. And I'm happy with what I'm prepared to deliver. But I know, because I've tried to make it my practice, as soon as I'm done preaching it, I'm going to know two or three at least things that I could have done better. And I found that to be tremendously helpful. And that, that came out of reading old things that when you read them, you're like, whether it's Broadus in English or Reinhold Pieper in German or something, you just realize they were demanding a lot more of themselves when they were preaching. (laughs) You know, not just, not just the length of the sermon, but how it was constructed and how it was written and how it was delivered. And so um, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's been fascinating and it's, it's humbling too. Well, and I, w- I would add to that because like with Broadus and, and I don't know about Reinhold, but I'm sure he's kind of the same way. It's just when they see, when you see like eternity in the balance with your sermons, it's going to change the way that you approach the task of preaching. I mean, when, I mean, if you're going up to the pulpit thinking, I'm going to actually change someone today when I preach. That's a completely different way of looking at it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Which is which is a way that, frankly, <clears throat> many are taught not to look at it nowadays. Right. It, and so the election then is now used as an excuse to not worry so much about the content of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Initially, I mean, there is a right impulse that says you don't have to resort to cheap gimmicks and right. emotional manipulation. Yeah, right. This is true. But it can quickly devolve into, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Because the elect will be saved, so I, I can no sweat. There's no consequences to my word. There's no consequences necessarily to what I teach or to what I do. In that case, then, that makes the scriptural admonition that uh, not many of you ought to be teachers into nothing. <laughs> right. right. Because, because there's no eternal consequence right. there. Right. And yet the scriptures say that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Right. And so, you know, you can either take that out of your Bible or listen to what, you know, the people uh, Zellin are quoting have to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you can hear this and think, okay, that's kind of a hard word to hear. Well, yeah, it is. This ain't no petty subject. Uh, this is, this is legit. I mean, this is, there is a, we are responsible for what we teach. And I think that that, biblically speaking, would also include how we go about it. Of course, God is gracious to us, and um, the Holy Spirit works in spite of our flaws. We're not saying that, but it doesn't mean that we now have the freedom to not be conscious of what we're doing. Or, heaven forbid, it doesn't mean that we have some kind of sanctified excuse to not be doing our duty right. of preaching. Yeah, right. Whatever that looks like. Right. So, guys, any final thoughts before we go to the first break? Yeah, I think if, you know... It, to take to heart what you just said, I think, you know, the listeners can just go read the first 14 verses of Matthew 22 and see that, you know, as the formula of Concord states over and over again, God elects, he gathers his elect 
he calls them into his heavenly kingdom through preaching. That's how serious it is. There are other elements to how people are gathered, right? Uh, obviously, they're baptized. Obviously, they receive Holy Communion. Preaching is the chief means. That's what the fathers say over and over and over and over again. It's the chief means of gaining souls and keeping souls for heaven. And that's why it has to be taken with such utter seriousness. All right. Well, with that, we got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz here with a special Word Fitly After Dark, talking about anything and everything and the future. By that, I don't mean crystal ball stuff, but Lord willing, what we will focus on later. Well, we talked a little bit about preaching, uh, which we will feature in more uh, in-depth episodes later on. And now we're going to talk about a fan favorite, a little fan service for everyone. Uh, we're going to talk about the liturgy a little bit, why the liturgy matters, what your preferred practices are and why, and uh, to see where it goes from there. So, Zellin, tell us a little bit about your views on the liturgy. Sure, you make me start out, okay? <laughs> I mean, I guess I think we're taking this in terms of, I don't know, do we want to take this in terms of, like, your favorite setting? I mean, what what direction are we going with this, Willie? Uh, let's, 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 can we do liturgy for it or again it first? <laughs> where do you stand, for or against <laughs> Obviously, it's it's a great benefit to the church to have you know liturgy. You know, this was a one. This is like the debates. This is a one. We're giving you a simple yes or no here, and okay. all I'm hearing, all right. I'm hearing equivocations. What I'm hearing, Adam, there's no one here. Okay, okay. I'm for it. <laughs> we got we got Chris Walachinsky over here on the other on the other end. <laughs> Adam says I'm for it. So yeah, no uh, liturgy is good. There are certainly good reasons to um, keep it. Now we're communicating, but go on. <laughs> so we all agree we're for it. Yeah. Um, and, right. and, you know, we all agree that setting three was handed down. Well, not really so much handed down as dug up, found on golden plates, and then preserved <laughs> for us. In rural Pennsylvania. So so the issue the issue here with, with, quote, setting three, and this is this is another, this is one of the tricks that they play is they give something a name that indicates that it is not what it used to be. Right. right. So right. setting three, if you look at it and you trace it back, back behind, you know, even the Lutheran hymnal of 1941. Right. Which, it, to be fair, it is page 15 still at, at my parish. There you so. go. That's what we like to hear. So is that it's it's called not setting three or even page 15. Or it, it is the common service. That is, it was when it was. And we <coughs> talked about this a little bit when we talked about William Dalman who was Missouri Synod, but was involved in the discussions that met largely in kind of southeastern Pennsylvania, headed up by a couple different Eastern Lutherans, including the son of Samuel Simon Schmucker, who was very much against the liturgy, right? So if you find someone who claims to be a Lutheran and is against the liturgy, there's probably a disconnect, a big one somewhere, because he's missing some pieces of the puzzle there Christologically and with his understanding of the sacraments and all that sort of thing. Samuel Simon Schmucker's son, Beal Schmucker, is completely instrumental 
in getting the common service to see the light of day towards the end of the 19th century. And that's therefore what you find not only in Missouri Synod English speaking stuff from that time onward, you also find it in pretty much anywhere else that American Lutherans are worshiping in English. So to call it, you know, setting three kind of relativizes it as if things that have much less of a pedigree and are much more unique to our church body, which all, everybody on this call is in the, the LCMS, I think that relativizes it too much. And it, and, it, and it acts like it's one option among many, which is kind of has been the fate of the liturgy generally in any setting. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, I would like to find a truly charitable answer for one to five settings that is not simply freedom or, I mean, freedom would be maybe the best one you could come up with, but preference. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. People want choices. And to me, that's not a satisfactory enough answer to change the service. Not just whole orders, but even certain parts of the service to omit or change. What What is, what is at the end of the day, if we can't agree on the unifying aspects of, of a common service, and the unifying, and let's just say the liturgy in general, historically speaking, if we can't agree on that, giving some room for local variation, because that is fair uh, to say that's historic, but some some minor variations here, then it's really hard to fight for any of it. And we really don't have a great leg to stand on against uh, like an Anglican changing the creed or something like that. Or I've even seen within our own synod people writing their own creeds to recite in certain right. <laughs> holidays and things like that. Yeah. At least, you know, this is, you know, just thinking through the issue, I mean, where do you stop? Once you've said, here's a, here's a buffet for you to pick from, the, the, the door's open. Well, and I think the thing that kind of makes it more difficult is it would be one thing, and you could probably make a reasonable defense for five different, like, musical changes of what is essentially the same service, you know. With the same words. With the same words. But our settings, as we have them, are not, I mean, there's even different wording. I mean, is it and with yeah. my spirit or is it and also with you? I mean, that's, that's something it confuses us every time we switch over between the two, you know, and when you introduce the change in words, as opposed to just a change in music, which you could probably more theologically defend. Um, yeah, you do open the door for some of these other things as well. Yeah. Well, then you start to see, I mean, you start to see it creep in like, look, if you want variety, there is matins and vespers and terse and laud and everything and you know a couple you know some things that aren't (laughs) included here and and there (laughs) right um but you know we've even introduced two different at least two baptismal rites right which i understand why but still it kind of puts us in this one one over the other kind of thing for some people yeah Uh, and it doesn't necessarily lend itself toward unity it doesn't have to be a source of division but it can easily become that right i yeah I, i think it it's it's just kind of obvious and you hear it when you're in an assembly that is that is mixed in its liturgical habits so th- they don't know how to respond necessarily it's sort of hard to remember i've seen it where you know you know that the pastor's general practice is this or that setting and he's asked to do another one and he's sort of very self-conscious in the service i think that it it's simply productive of confusion and yeah. that's not necessarily like going to destroy the church, but it's also not good for the church. Right. And this is not a comment on the aesthetics of, say, setting one or something like no. that. That's a different discussion. Right. You know, because people say, well, isn't this setting beautiful or, or um, laudatory or isn't it um, edifying? Right. And that's a separate question from, is this the best thing to do? Right. Right. Exactly. And I... When you when you have those those different sorts of things, or when I mean I I think maybe the terms in which we talk about things are often unhelpful because it, everything is constantly brought up as a matter of conscience. You know, like my conscience, my don't don't bind consciences, and and I understand why that's done. I understand historically, and I understand theologically why that's done. I think pastorally it's unwise to make everything an issue of someone's conscience or someone's being offended because who knows whose conscience could be pricked by something or who, who could be offended by this or that practice. I think pastorally in the church's liturgy, also in things like 
vestments and paraments and the church's furnishings, all these sorts of things. I think it's better to take the advice that Luther applies to the small catechism. And I wish we applied it to things like Bible translations and the liturgy, which is stop changing it, pick one and stick with it. And then everyone does that one, maybe even just in that parish or that district or whatever, and then you stick with it. And I'm not, this is not some sort of, before we get hate mail, not from our listeners, but from, you know, muckety mucks, this is not some sort of like policy proposal for the LCMS. I I fully understand why this is probably impossible (laughs) based on our polity. But what I'm saying is it's not pastorally effective to keep changing things. Just pick it and stick with it. Don't explain it too much. Just run with it. Right. Yeah. And it's not even really a question of like level of like ceremony or something no, like that. No, you no. Know, it's not, we're not t- arguing for like, should you wear a chasuble or something like that? That's not really the question of what's going on with the liturgy here. It really is a question of if you're going to teach with it, which I mean, which we are trying to do, I would. And help. which we do, even if we don't mean to. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. If you're going to teach, you know, be consistent. Yeah. Uh, and, and do it well, right. I would add, too. You know, but consistency leads to, to doing something well. <clears throat> if if you're going, if you're practicing well, if you're intentionally doing it. You know, one of the objections is, well, you can fall into a rut. And that is true, but you just have to consciously make sure that you yourself don't fall into a rut and rush through the prayers, right. rush through the, the readings and things right. like that. Right. Uh, which, you know, frankly, is a problem. But that's a problem across all liturgical churches. Frankly, anybody could fall into that. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be a problem even for a non-liturgical. You know, just because you're not doing it by the book doesn't mean that it can't be wrote. Sure. I, I, do, I do think that it's, it's helpful to look at liturgical confusion of any degree, whether we're talking about vastly different wordings, completely different flow to the service, which is actually contained within our liturgical orders at this point or just churches in the LCMS or the Wells or the ELS that are just not using the liturgy at all. I think it's more helpful to see these things as symptoms of something rather than the primary disease. If you're going to talk about, you know, the sort of buffet style thing where we can, but what we used it, you know, in the way where we said, well, if you want to take something out or change something in the liturgy, and we we tend to think of changing by omission or kind of remaking, but there's also the other side that wants to just throw any liturgical embellishment in. And that's kind of the same symptom, though, to say that I want to add yeah. more on to it right. For, right. For, for whatever reason, for yeah. no, no good reason sometimes. And some, sometimes it is well thought out. And there, there are times where you can add certain liturgical accompaniments that are, that are perfectly fine. And other times they are brought in kind of roughshod and maybe aren't the best practice. And so, but that, that, but that is part of this. That's the same symptom is what I'm saying. Right. The manifestation of the same symptom to, to where you can be just as guilty of having a laser light show and wanting it to be all the way you want it. And then having, I don't know, a triple tiara on or something. During the mass. <laughs> Cause we're going full papal. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I'm just gonna, you know, daily reminder that just because it's historical, if your parish has never seen it before, it's not historical to them. So, but go on. <laughs> right. And I mean, but, and that is something, something to consider. And we can say, well, you know, in the old country, uh, if they were from an urban area, they would have dressed like this. Well, and in the old country, in a rural area, they would have been different. Um, but we're not in the old country. And we do, unfortunately, have, you know, well over a century and a half of Lutheran tradition in America, just speaking of the LCMS, but over two centuries of Lutheranism in general that, that has developed in a way that doesn't always look like what's there, that what, that what the original, certain original Lutherans would have done. And, okay, that's good, you know, to say we want to recover this, but the way in which we have to go about that recovery, if we agree to go forward with it, must be a little bit more deliberate sometimes, and right. perhaps a bit more delicate, depending on where you're at. And I, I think that the common service is a good example of that Americanization of confessional Lutheranism, not in some sort of, you know, evil subterranean uh, schmucker is going to destroy everything or praise bands are going to destroy everything way, but that the common service is not something from the old country. It is sourced from older orders, 
There was a lot of detailed historical research that went into it. But the language of American Lutheranism is definitively influenced by the Book of Common Prayer. 100%, yeah. Yep, because they understood that to be an English-speaking Christian is to be influenced by the Book of Common Prayer, even down to people that never go to church, know Thomas Cranmer's words for describing what a marriage is. So they were insightful in seeing that these questions are not all abstractly resolved, but when you set your mind to a common solution, agree to abide by it, and use what is best both in your culture and also in our theological tradition, you can come up with things that are of lasting value. They don't have to be inerrant, right? I don't have a sort of Quranic doctrine of the common service. It didn't fall from the sky and it was not whispered by an angel to a prophet, but it is very good and we've been using it for a long time. And so the reasons in its favor should be much weightier than those in favor of even things that I like better than the common service, me personally, or you personally, or anyone personally, but that are yet fail to be common. They've never been seen before by anyone in that congregation where they're being done that Sunday. The common service is not that. It actually truly is common. And yeah. so it's, it's recovery and it's preservation and it's being done well I think ultimately serves the long-term interests of everybody because when when they're putting us in jail, it would be nice to be able to do church without needing books. And nobody, <laughs> well, nobody's going to do that with many of the other options on the table. Yeah. And, uh, and I do want to stress that for uh, any new listeners or non-LCMS listeners, we've kind of gone down a bit of an esoteric rabbit hole for you there. Uh, what we are talking about when we say things like setting one, setting three, setting five, and so on, are simply uh, the orders of service, the options that we have for ordering a service within our denominational hymn book. And, and so if you're tuning in and you're kind of outside our wheelhouse and you've stuck with us thus far, thank you. Uh, but, but that is what we're, what we're talking about we here. We love you and we salute you. Yeah, you're real troopers. It gets, it gets more fun from here. So, and, you know, people are going to say things like, well, why argue over that? You know, to go back to your us being thrown into the to the prisons uh, argument illustration. Well, uh, you know, why argue over that? Well, it's precisely because we want something to take underground with us, as you say. Uh, we want something that, in those dark times and behind bars, or in hushed living rooms with the curtains drawn uh, for fear of people coming knocking at the doors, that we can all pray together without books from our hearts, from our minds, things we've committed to memory in hushed tones if need be, but things that unite us in our beautiful parishes with beautiful artwork in them and beautiful organs. It will unite us there and will unite us all the more in the dark places, the hiding places, the secret places that we may soon be driven to. Sure. Zelman, you've been conspicuously quiet for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, even even if you're not Missouri Synod and this, you know, like you say, this is kind of foreign to you. I think the the principles that we're trying to, to hash out here apply to any you know, tradition, honestly, because, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, what do we hold in common as Christians? You know, how do we worship together? How do we, you know, come together? And, you know, what kind of forms do our worship take? You know, if there is confusion in the midst of what, you know, where there should be harmony, that's going to be detrimental to anyone. Not just to us, you know, uh, trying to figure out like the common service or, you know, or setting three or, you know, if you are introducing a general chaos into the very heart of where there should be unity, you are, I mean, you're, you're hurting the church. And I think that's, that's true anywhere. Yeah. All right. Well, any final uh, liturgical things that we want to talk about? You know, uh, we and, and again, this is not a, not a discussion on hymns either. Hymnody would also be another another subject. Yeah, hymnody, hymnody is another subject. I mean, I think some of the things that we have been discussing are more easily applicable to things like vestments or church furnishings or certain ceremonies. Some, you know, so something completely innocuous and I don't think controversial anywhere is, you know, having an advent wreath. 
Well, there was a there was a t- maybe it's not innocuous everywhere, but there was a time when that was a novelty practice. Right. Right. Um, Christmas tree. Yeah, and and I I think those examples are actually helpful because putting up a Christmas tree is basically completely uncontroversial in at least Lutheran churches that I'm aware of. Maybe not its placement or how many or how tall it's going to be, but putting up a Christmas tree is complete, and and that's good. And it doesn't remind us of you know pagan gods of Northern Europe. It's a Christmas tree, so that's that's an example where acculturation has worked, and it's worked really well. And in that case, really only since the 19th century. So things like that that become common, expected, normal. And that unite us as a group, united ultimately around Christ and what he's doing in and through the church. That's what we're looking for. And we want that to apply not just to the Christmas tree, but to the words that we speak together and uh, pretty much anything the church is doing as much as possible. Very well said. We're coming up on our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz with a special Word Fitly After Dark. You can tell I'm not used to promoing this new subheading that we're doing or new title we're doing, this new feature episode that we're doing because, uh, anyway, I'm stuttering and it's not usually something that I do, yet here we are. I don't have my teleprompter in front of me. I don't have, I'm not wired up. I don't have the cochlear implant or the wrist thing, so I, I'm stuttering uh, as we record and I apologize for that. We, if you don't, if if I stutter too much, I promise we'll issue you a full refund. All right, so now we're going to talk a little bit about projects we have coming up in the future. Uh, some things we're excited about. We're going to talk about some upcoming episodes, perhaps. We want to get your input about what you would like to hear about. So, Adam, first and foremost, what's this? Uh, tell us about one of our major projects we have coming up. Yeah, this is a lo- kind of a long range thing. There was a magazine produced in the Missouri Synod from 1877 and 1929 called at various times in various ways, the Magazine for Evangelical Lutheran Homiletics. And uh, it's got not only sample sermons and stuff, which we're not really looking at getting into print right now, but it has tons of articles about how to preach and why to preach this way and how to handle this and how to handle that, some perennial stuff. Uh, guys still debate how to uh, exhort evangelically, but also stuff that we generally don't debate anymore. So a long nine-part article over uh, most of a year called uh, To Memorize or To Extemporize, because the idea of reading a sermon was just not even part of the question. So I've taken about 300 pages in the original format. It would be different as set in a modern book. And we've got a couple different translators. Zelwyn is one of them working once we have uh, access to the files. The seminary library is being very helpful with that. But we, we're going to get all this together and start to translate. We're eventually looking to begin publishing. And this would be our first book. And that would be basically so that it's affordable to pastors as the original magazine was. And so that it can be as helpful to as many people as possible. Yeah. So we are hoping, you know, Lord willing uh, to dip our toes into publishing. Uh, this would be the uh, 
the first thing out of the gate that we'd really be working toward. And we've, uh, we're sort of brainstorming some other projects. You might see Word Fitly, a Hinkle uh, Word Fitly editions or something like that coming, coming down the pike. Right. Um, so we promise that whatever we produce will be good for you. Nourishing, if you will. Wholesome. <laughs> right. Well, and, and also I think, I think our idea with it, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, is not just to do reprinting. You know, we are trying right. to find new content, like, you know, stuff that's never really been done before. Right. With, right. with the hopes of getting some of this stuff, which has been locked away out, out. Yeah. And, and if, and in the case of reprints to make them in a more accessible format, you know, sure. or, or, you know, kind of like uh greatest hits albums as it were. So things, things like that, more accessible, a little easier, digestible, and certainly Lord willing again, um, easier on the pocketbook uh, than it needs to be. Uh, sometimes tracking down these old volumes are hard. Sometimes some of the print on demand stuff can be a little bit spendy. And so, uh, you know, we, we like to be uh, thrifty here. Our goal is to get good material to you in an economic manner, in a Christian, in a Christian manner. We're kind of following a Trinity Bible society rules here when it comes to our, our hopes to publish. Yeah. If you, I mean, if, if you're looking for a Greek Hebrew Bible together, uh, please give those folks your business. TBS.org Trinitarian Bible society. Yeah. Because they, they actually behave like Christians. So. And, uh, and I want, I want to be very clear that their, that their binding is, is quite good. Yeah. Uh, And so it's not like good for the money. It's, it's legitimately good. And I, and I do apologize. It's not tbs.org anymore. It's tbsbibles.org. That's tbsbibles.org. So um, get you get yourself, if you're looking for English and you want a good King James, uh, check them out because that's what they offer in English. So, <laughs> Or a metrical Psalter, but yeah. Yeah, you can get your King James with metrical Psalter in there. So not only do you get you know your regular Psalter, but you get a metrical psalter you can fit two psalters in one book imagine that that's skill my friend the uh uh the the astute listener will perceive that the last segment the middle segment on liturgical uniformity is a result of struggles within the production team of word fitly spoken (laughs) uh but in liturgical directions the listener probably has no concept of so we have hashed these things out for ourselves and that's why we presented what we just did in the last 20 minutes exactly Um, it only came to blows twice. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, um, that's going to be exciting. We know you, we know you all love to read. I'm assuming we would also have digital versions available as well. Uh, EPUB, Kindle, whatever. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. Uh, what else do we have coming guys? Well, I can, I can talk about our, our one of our next uh, little projects we got going on. Uh, we're looking to produce a, for the lack of a better way of describing it, a, a kind of brief commentary on the lectionary, the one-year lectionary, you know, looking to give some insights, looking to kind of aid in the, the process of preaching these texts, because it's not it's not geared so much towards a, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? You know, the way that commentaries usually are presented, but more of a question, uh, more of like raising questions for the, the, the listener to kind of ponder on, to think about, like, how would you preach this? You know, here's some ideas, you know, that are kind of come out of the text. Well, what would you do with that kind of a thing? So it's not just a, we're not writing your sermon for you, <laughs> uh, but, you know, trying to to aid in the, the process of preparing sermons. Adam, do you want to add to that? Or? Yeah, and we're, we want to have this available starting for release on time each week for a year, beginning with this Advent. And we're, we're also going to include commentary on some more obscure things, harvest observance, mission festivals, stuff like that, some, some of the other options you have. And I haven't researched this. The, the lectionary that we're using is what's listed in the Lutheran service book for Old Testament epistle and gospel. That's probably not identical to one-year readings in, say, evangelical Lutheran hymnary or uh, Christian worship. Uh, the Wisconsin Synod's hymnal. So those discrepancies, the, the listeners will just sort of have to forgive us for at the outset. But um, we want to provide the capacity to stimulate thought, right? Not to do your thinking for you as a preacher, but to stimulate your thinking to be a friend and a help to you. And so that hopefully your sermons are just that much little bit that we can offer better 
that week because of the commentaries that you're going to be able to find from WordFitly. Very good. See, what else do we have? A uh, lot of, lot of uh, kettles on the fire right now. Merchandise. Uh, a lot of, uh, several of you have been asking about merch. Merch is in the works. I uh, can't tell you where it's going to be available from yet. Uh, we've got a few more uh, things to figure out first, but merchandise will happen. Uh, we're looking at T-shirts, hats, mugs. Do you think we should do mugs, guys? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, two things. Uh, one, one is that I think we're going to need uh, word fitly spoken face masks. Um, uh, you know, if only ironically, you, you can wear God's mighty sword of his word, uh, which can defeat all powers in heaven and on earth on your face because you're scared. And then um, also, uh, we can't get on this fast enough because what I'm understanding is that listeners are acquiring contraband merchandise from a, uh, a supplier based in Taiwan, ostensibly, but probably manufacturing in some sweatshop in Indonesia or Cambodia. And this needs to end. And I want you guys to stop <laughs> buying this stuff. Right. And children are suffering because of it. And and you joke, but the official word fitly spoken mask is actually a balaclava. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, pure, pure, pure yeah. IRA. But yeah, we yeah. will get some uh, right some uh, disease fighting masks uh, too. You know, for you guys. If you so, if you yeah, the the balaclava gives off a certain IRA kind of vibe, which is an which is an Ulster Protestant like myself. A <laughs> uh, little 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 uh, confusing feels to be honest. <laughs> Hey, we all have things that we're still working through, you know? <laughs> the new the new word fitly theme is actually just a synth version of come out ye black and tans. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so merchandise, we are working on um, word fitly nation. You'll be the first to know once we get that uh, straightened out and figured out, we won't release it until it looks, uh, until it looks just right. And so we've got a few more people to contact uh, to get uh, to get things rolling there. If there's any other kind of merchandise you'd like to see, you can let us know in the comments. Um, so those are the big ones. Uh, publishing, uh, merch. If you do, when you get the merch, uh, you know, be sure to uh, take a pic, tag us in it on social media. Same thing with the printed books. We remind you to do so because we are, uh, unfortunately, living in the digital age. We must promote ourselves on social media in this way. So, and in the old fashioned way, I'll just tell you to do it instead of giving you 14 hashtags when we finally kick off the projects, right? So, all right, guys. Well, now we're going to talk about episodes that we have coming up. Adam, what, what's coming up that you're excited about? I'm excited about all the stuff involving preaching Christ, which will probably be devoted episode by episode to different preachers. One that I'm working on is uh, Luther's Church Postles which are enormous in extent, five full volumes in the American edition. Uh, we're not going to discuss every one of those in depth, obviously, but we want to pick up on how does Luther address difficult uh, topics? How does he teach? How does he comfort? How does he correct? And I, I hope to get beyond sort of, you know, cliches like Luther talks about the Pope a lot. Yes, he does. Luther talks about monks a lot. Of course he does. Luther verbally abuses people, and maybe people were rolling their eyes even back in, you know, 1534. That's probably true. But to kind of pick out what would be most helpful to people, whether they preach regularly or listen regularly. And I would add to that, too, you know, I'm like, I'll probably be doing some topics on like, you know, patristic preaching, like I had mentioned, and trying to glean some insights into that. I mean, I think really... I think Adam would agree with me on this, that the, the point of the, these preaching Christ is really a very practical kind of goal. Yeah, right. So, right. you know, it's got a historical basis, but a, a practical aim. Right. So, right. Willie, what are you excited about? Well, you know, um, we uh, and Zellin and I have uh, debated this back and forth, whether we want to do an episode focusing on the Book of Enoch <laughs> and some kind of Second Temple era literature. I think it would be fun. You can let us know. Because we do want to know what you want to hear. So talk about Enoch. And if it were up to me, we could do more than one episode. And I'd I'd take Enoki and stuff all the way up to John D. if I could. And I guess I can. But, okay. you know, I... we, don't, we don't want to bore you. But I think it is an interesting book to go through, uh, kind of take a sober walk through it and kind of look at that, you know, at least one strain of teaching 
you know, that continues well up into the time of the New Testament. And uh, it's really, it's the basis for certain popular culture, pop culture versions of Christianity you see out there, which is not necessarily an indictment of the context uh, or the content of Enoch, but it just is what it is. So I think it would be fun to tackle. So let us know. Uh, We're also probably going to be doing another spooky episode. Uh, So let us know what you'd like. We've, we've done ghosts and, and we've done witches and we can always retread that. So let us know what kind of spooky stuff you'd like to hear about. We haven't done the full on cryptid episode. I mean, other than having Zellwin here with us every episode. So, <laughs> yeah, can confirm in person he is a cryptid. It's true. Right. Not cataloged, you know. Right. Um, right. And he doesn't photograph. Right. Always blurry. <laughs> so, so we've got a lot of stuff coming up. You know, Halloween's coming up. I don't know if we'll be able to squeeze a Halloween episode in there or not, but you might be too late by Thanksgiving. But hey, any time of the year is a spooky time of the year if you want it to be. Uh, we have gotten a lot of positive feedback on the UFOs and stuff. So we do know that there's an interest in those kinds of, of subjects. So we do want to continue. Uh, we do want to continue to focus on that a little bit. Uh, so we're going to get our 19th century Lutheranism. We're going to get our, our, our first generation Lutheranism in there. We're going to get our ancient church in there. And we're going to continue to tackle what we would call, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of the weirder subjects. Because people, uh, and even apologetically, uh, it, it's quite important today because people are interested and attracted to those things uh, now uh, more than ever. That, we're, starting to see, we're starting to see the swing away from the, the naturalists and back to the in search of kind of stuff again. That is a really good point because I think that there is the disdain uh, where there has been disdain about our talking about UFOs has pretty much always been from clergy and that's fine. And I expected it to come to some degree. The feedback has been, I think, overwhelmingly positive. And I think that when you when you understand that we're not discussing things just because they're sort of like exciting. I mean, I could be excited about any number of topics that I know would be desperately boring to other people. I think that the reason to bring them up is, like you said, precisely because they are apologetically important in a world that is no longer in the least even attempting to be rational. And there are things about that that are probably good for the church. It makes it easier for our message to be, I think, heard in a, in a sense, but it also just presents new challenges. So I don't need to um, argue extensively about inerrancy with someone who is, first of all, concerned with contacting the dead. Uh, We can talk about inerrancy later. Uh, First, I need to talk about the issues that actually are live within his spirit. And if those are weird things, if he says, hey, what do you think about black-eyed kids? And I don't know what that is. Well, I don't get to decide that, well, that's just stupid stuff on the internet (laughs) because (laughs) he believes it. So I need to have something to say about it. Right. So confirmed, we're going to do black-eyed kids. All right. Uh, we're just going to read creepy pastas for, for an hour one day. But yeah, and you know, it's 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 a good it's a good subject to cover. You know, maybe we'll maybe we'll break out Cotton Mather for a for a future episode. We don't know yet. Uh, let us know. I mean, and sincerely, uh, as as our audience, um, we always take into consideration whatever whatever questions or suggestions you all have. Uh, we might even do an episode talking about our favorite Bibles. And talking about what makes a good Bible, uh, what we look for when purchasing a Bible, yeah. uh, which might bore some people to tears. But actually, you know, it's kind of hard to find a good Bible these days. I don't mean content wise. I mean, just one that won't break down. You would be amazed how strong of opinions there are in the word fitly crew about the construction <laughs> of the Bible. So, right. <laughs> right. All of us have like Bibles constructed of saddle leather and brass. Like we are just, you know, <laughs> we, we agree it needs to be strong. Uh, the disagreements are mostly paper and, and that's actually literally true. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to hear 20 minutes on the proper way to typeset a Bible and a debate over double or single column? <laughs> well, that's easy. So right. Simple. It's single column master race. Yeah. But, right. Exactly. But, but, but the Allen long primer is, is double column, but we give it a pass because it right. is the long, the long right. primer. Well, yeah. you, so. you just do that because of the full yap. Just be honest, Willie. I know the full yap needs to make a comeback. You know, the circuit rider probably all had full yaps riding out in the rain like that. 
I bet Walther used a full yet. It was, it was the little bit of luxury they afforded themselves. <laughs> Otherwise, right now, right now, Google searches for full yap have uh, have increased two hundred fold, and I'm and I'm proud of that. <laughs> well, all right, gentlemen, we're coming up on the end of the episode. Uh, what final words do you have before we sign off? It's great to be back. Very excited. Very excited for the season, and and also for what is coming. I think that. We're hoping to set a tone of being of service to the church practically so that God's word can go forth. And uh, I'm very excited to see how that's going to happen in the coming season. And I would I would just add to that, you know, even if we do delve into the more historical or the esoterical or whatever, because, you know, I might actually finally finish my uh, series on the church <laughs> councils this year <laughs> or this season, but... Um, even if we do delve into stuff like that, you know, it's always for the purpose of being like, like Adam said, very practical, being of service to the church, because these things do matter. And, uh, it, and we're hoping that, you know, whatever we delve into will be, be a benefit to you and to those uh, whom you serve. Well, guys, thank you very much. Um, look forward to working with you throughout this season for another, our fourth season, right, Zolan? Correct. Yeah, this is season number four, so pretty exciting. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless.